Hey, you know, somebody said that your character is revealed when pressure is applied. I said that in a sermon a little over a year ago, and I couldn't track down the exact source, so I'm going to quote myself as saying it. (laughs) I don't know who said it, but somebody did, and I think they're right. You know, when life gets tough, who you really are starts to show up. And uh, I think we're seeing that every day around us in our world. Uh, the heat gets turned up a little bit, the pressure gets applied, and who you really are on the inside starts to show. And for us as Christians, that's really exciting. You know, on the one hand, because the world is the way it is, I believe there's never been a greater time to be involved in what God's doing in the world. Uh, You're really able to let your light shine when it's dark. People know who you are. When people are hopeless, You're able to live out the hope of your calling, and people say, hey, there's something different about those people. And so the world's messed up, but here we get to live as shining examples of what it means to follow Christ. On the other hand, though, lately I've noticed that many of us Christians seem to be letting stuff out that looks an awful lot like our unbelieving neighbors. The pressure's applied to us, and instead of faith, we've got anxiety and worry and anger, and fear, and all kind of stuff. And that makes things difficult, because the pressure is applied, what's on the inside comes out, and what's coming out of a lot of us is indistinguishable from the unbelieving world. And the reason I was thinking about that is it's hard to imagine people going through a worse set of circumstances than the man and woman in our story. I can't imagine what it must be like to suffer from a chronic illness of 12 years that cost you every last dime you have trying to find resolution. Uh, I tear up every time I read this passage and think about this man's little girl. The word he uses in, when Jairus runs up and falls at the feet of Jesus is a Greek word called dugatrion. And I was sitting in a library in Houston, Texas in seminary uh, working on some, some homework for my seminary class and came across this word dugatrion. Aaron was pregnant with Mary Jo And it pricked my heart like you wouldn't believe. The dictionary definition is my dear little daughter. Every time I think about this man, what would he must have felt watching his little girl suffer? Man, I can't think of people in worse sets of circumstances. But when the pressure was applied to them, there wasn't anxiety, wasn't fear, wasn't anger. There was just this deep faith and trust in what God could do. And because of that, this morning, I want us to look at them and see the example they give us of the kind of faith that you and I need to cultivate. Because, I I don't know, the world doesn't seem to be getting any better. And so um, it's not like all of a sudden the switch is going to flip, fingers are going to snap, and everything's going to be better. You and I got to figure out how to live in a messed up world. And they show us the exact way. We have to live with a desperate faith, believing that Jesus meets desperate faith with God's miraculous power. That's what I want you to see this morning, that Jesus meets desperate faith with God's miraculous power. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Mark 4 and 5, really a section of Mark's gospel that draw our attention to Jesus' unequaled, unparalleled authority. It began when Jesus and his disciples got in a boat and left the west side of the Sea of Galilee for the east side. And while they were crossing the lake, a terrible storm arose, so bad that these professional sailors thought they were going to drown. They woke Jesus up. It must have been spring forward, and he was sleeping in, trying to catch up on that lost hour of sleep. I don't know, probably not. But they woke him up, and they said, what are you going to do? We're drowning. 
And he stood up and just spoke the words, peace be still. And the storm was calm. When they got to the east side of the shore, he goes on, on land, and here comes this crazy garrison demoniac full of thousands of demons. And Jesus simply gave them permission, and they entered into a thousand, couple thousand pigs and ran off into the sea. Unparalleled authority over unclean spirits. Now he makes his way back to the west side of the lake for this third story. And if you thought the first two were wild, this one is an escalation like you couldn't imagine. I mean, not just healing a woman who's suffered for 12 years, an incurable disease, but actually raising a little girl from the dead. Now, I love this passage because it's our second example to look at together of Mark's favorite literary technique, which I told you back at the chap end of chapter 3, they call a Markin sandwich. How he'll take one story and start it up and then interrupt it with another story and then get back to that first story. And in these Markin sections, uh, Markin sandwiches, these intercalations of stories, they're connected thematically and theologically so that the stories interpret one another and give you a clearer picture of their significance. And in both of the stories, you could think about it in terms of Jesus' power over sickness and death. And I think that's clear. That's what we're supposed to see. But there's also something about this faith. Jesus looks this woman in the eyes and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And that's the whole interpretive key to this section because Mark wants us to see that this story is all about Jesus' powerful response to faith. Faith. And I want you to cultivate this kind of faith. I want you to know God's power in your life. I want it to be present to you, not some abstract concept. I want you to know God's nearness, just like the people of Israel knew his nearness for them when they crossed into the promised land. I want you to know it. And so this morning, this is the first thing I want you to see. Desperate faith recognizes Jesus as its only hope. This faith we've got to cultivate recognizes Jesus as its only hope. Mark tells us right out of the gate that as he arrives back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, this man named Jairus runs up and falls at his feet. He calls him one of the synagogue officials. And he begged him, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she'll get well and live. I've already told you I think this Jairus does what any good dad would do. He searched out an answer for his daughter's problem and a cure for her illness. Mark wants us to know this man's not just anybody. He's not a garrison demoniac. He's a ruler of the synagogue. That's significant because Jairus must have known Jesus pretty well by this point. Maybe you remember back in Mark chapter 1, we were looking at this last fall. Uh, Jesus actually performed his first public miracle at the synagogue in Capernaum when a man with an unclean spirit came in. And Jesus said, shut up and come out of the man. And the whole synagogue was amazed. I mean, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, must have had a first front row seat to that. You see, a ruler of the synagogue was a member of the worshiping community, a member of the church, a layman, not a priest or a scribe, just a regular old worshiper of God who'd been hand-selected by the elders to oversee the building and grounds. Mr. Matthews? Oversee the building and grounds of the synagogue and to plan their worship service. Mike? Right? He, this guy is intimately involved in the details of the synagogue, and so he knew Jesus really well. In fact, maybe a time or two he'd ask Jesus to stand up and read from the scrolls and to bring a word of exhortation. 
He was in tune with everything going on in the worshiping community of Capernaum. At the same time, you got to be thinking that he was always on the lookout, maybe questioning and listening carefully to the things Jesus taught to sniff out any unorthodox theology or any political rabble-rousing. I'm sure he was watching with a careful eye as Jesus gained popularity with the crowds in Capernaum and started experiencing deepening conflict with the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, maybe by this point, Jairus was open to holding Jesus at arm's length. Like, there's something different about this man. He's a good teacher and healer, but I don't know, he's a little suspect. I don't know, I'm reading between the lines, of course, but by the time his daughter gets sick, none of that stuff matters. He knows that Jesus is his little girl's only hope, and so he ran and fell at his feet, believing that if Jesus would just do for his little girl what he'd done for all these other people, if he'd just lay his hands on her, she'd be saved. Her life would be spared. And so because of that, I think it's fair to say that Jairus' desperate faith recognized Jesus as his only hope. So Jesus shows compassion on him. Here's a well-to-do, dignified, religious man at his feet, crying, begging for him to come and help. What's Jesus going to do? Say no. So he gets up and he goes with him and he presses through the large crowd of people that's always around him. The image I get is a bunch of adoring fans pressing in to get close to a celebrity or a professional athlete to get their autograph. You know, their arms reaching one over the other. Hey, sign this, sign this. Jesus, touch this. I think about the reporters pressing against a politician. Uh, Mr. President, would you answer my question? They're trying to get to him, get some interaction with him. They're like the screaming girls at a Beatles concert or a BTS concert, just reaching out for the stage, trying to touch them. You know, it's like, oh, that's the crowd of Jesus' followers, okay? They're enamored by the man. They're getting as close as they can. And from behind him, out of nowhere, creeps up this little lady. I mean, Jairus was a respectable religious man. This, moment, this one was totally the opposite. I mean, if you had a scale and spectrum of the people who are important in Capernaum. Jairus is on one end. This woman's on the other. Mark tells us she suffered for 12 years from a flow of blood. He's delicate, but not very descriptive in the way he addresses it. The Law of Moses talks about these types of medical conditions, oozing sores and flows of blood. Leviticus 15 it tells us that a person suffering from such a condition was ritually unclean, not permitted to enter into the tabernacle to worship God until the ooze and flow ceased, until the proper sacrifices could be made. This woman for 12 years had been ritually unclean, kept out of society, kept away from church. She couldn't sit on the same surface as other people. They couldn't enter her home without risk of taking on the impurity to themselves. And as a result, a woman in this condition lived with no future, no hope. She couldn't get married. She couldn't have children. She was just living out a terminal sentence in isolation and separation. I mean, even risking exposure to the crowd, pressing through, opened her up to all kinds of penalties and punishment. 
And so it's unsurprising that she would search out for some kind of cure. I mean, Mark tells us she'd been to many physicians. Many of the commentators call this a polemic against doctors. Mark had no time for doctors. They're always finding things wrong with you. And uh, these couldn't help at all. He says in verse 26, she'd endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and wasn't helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Collection of ancient rabbinical teaching called the Talmud records some of the uh, measures they must have gone to in trying to find this woman a cure. They, they contain all these different remedies. They sound magical. I'll read you a few of them. One remedy consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Another treatment con- consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine and administered with the summons, Arise out of your flow of blood. Other physicians prescribed sudden shock, which isn't like electric shock therapy. It must be like blunt force trauma. Or like put you in a warm bath and then put you in an ice bath. Or carrying the ash. Oh, this is my favorite. Carrying the ash of an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. No wonder none of these things worked, you know? <laughs> But can you imagine having to resort to those sorts of things? Can you imagine being so desperate for some kind of cure that you'd track down an ostrich's egg, burn it until you had its ash, and carry it around in a handkerchief? That must have been miserable. So though the doctors tried, no cure could be found. Here she was, stuck in her uncleanliness, her ritual impurity, without hope. But then, Mark says, she heard about Jesus. you got to wonder, by this point, who hadn't heard about Jesus? I mean, his fame is spreading everywhere. There are cleansed lepers. There are demoniacs set free from their bondage. I mean, who hadn't heard of Jesus? But, but she hears about Jesus, and she decides, wait, the doctors can't help me, but maybe Jesus can. And so she risks exposing other people to her impurities and defilements. And she presses through the crowd of adoring fans just so that she can reach out and grasp the hem of his robe. She says, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Listen, Jairus and this woman are opposite ends of the spectrum, but they got something deeply in common. They both possessed a desperate faith that recognized Jesus as their only hope. If he didn't show up, if he didn't come through, if he didn't do what he'd done for others for them, nobody could. He was all they had left. When I read about faith like that, it convicts me a little bit. You know, I'm tempted to think about faith as mental assent, agreeing with certain facts or statements, like to say... I believe the earth is round. That means that I accept the truthfulness of the statement that the earth is in fact round. I'm not a flat earther, despite what you may think. But to say that I believe Jesus can heal, I accept the truthfulness of the claim that Jesus can heal. Like an abstract thing. Like, I believe that gas costs $4 a gallon. Doesn't take a lot. I can look at the sign and see. 
Is that what faith is? Is that what the faith of these people was? Just some abstract concept that they agree with the truthfulness? Like, maybe Jesus could help somebody like me. Yeah, I'd believe that. Now, biblically speaking, faith is something deeper than just mental assent. In fact, the Old Testament word that's most often used for faith is a Hebrew word called aman. It means faith, to believe in something. But it can also mean to trust, to find something reliable and trustworthy. One scholar said that faith from a biblical perspective means fastening your heart upon the divine word of promise. It means to lean on the power and faithfulness of God. In other words, the desperate faith of a person like Jairus or this woman with the flow of blood wasn't just agreeing that Jesus can heal. It was moving heaven and earth because they trusted with all their heart that he could do it for them. When the pressure was applied, they acted with deep trust and dependence on Jesus. And I'm convicted because when the pressure is applied in my life, I don't know that I always resort here first. That maybe I try to solve crises on my own. Are you with me? You know what that means to find some pressure, to come up short financially, to find a medical illness. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to track down the experts. You're going to go online and do the research, WebMD it out, find out what your symptoms are all about, see if there's any alternative remedy. You're going to start changing your diet. You're going to start doing all kinds of crazy things because you're going to figure this thing out, right? You're going you're to power your way through it. But eventually, all that stuff falls through. You go to the experts, and the experts give you advice, and that just comes up short. And when all else fails and all you've got left is Jesus, you discover that's really all you need. He's it. The desperate faith of these people said, Jesus is my only hope. They had tried everything out, and they went to him, fell at his feet, grasped him by the robe, and said, Jesus, please be Jesus for me. Please do what you've done for others for me. You're my only hope. That's the desperate faith you and I have to learn how to cultivate, to get beyond all the self-help and all the sources of information and get straight to Christ, to trust Him with everything we have, to lean on Him as the source and satisfaction for every one of our needs. So first you've got to see, desperate faith recognizes Jesus as its only hope. And number two, desperate faith refuses to be discouraged. Now we're going to come back to this woman in a second, but I want you to jump on down with me to verse 35. So Jesus gets caught up with this woman and is delayed, and Jairus' daughter apparently takes a turn for the worse. And somebody comes from his house with the news that his daughter has passed away. They say, verse 35, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? I love that. This little mini-series is Jesus the Teacher. They're fine to look at Jesus as a teacher. Why trouble the teacher anymore? See, from their perspective... They knew that Jesus could make a difference while the girl was living. But the girl's dead, and so they assumed he's got nothing left to offer. I mean, nothing he can do. Just, it's happened. If he got here earlier, maybe he could have made a difference, but he didn't, and she's dead. Don't bother him anymore. He's obviously a busy guy. he got other things he needs to take care of. But I love Jesus' response. Mark says that um, overhearing them, where does he say? Verse 35, 36, Jesus overhearing what was being spoken. 
Now, the way you, you read overhearing and, and you think, okay, well, he's off at a distance and he overhears them say. But another way to translate that word, Jesus heard and ignored what they said. It's like it doesn't factor into him in any way. He sees things differently. From their perspective, yeah, there's nothing else he can do. But he looks at Jairus dead in the eyes, you got to think, and he says, hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. That's the whole key to this story. The desperate faith refuses to be discouraged, even when situations change and take a turn for the worse like it did for Jairus. I mean, it was easier for Jairus to believe that Jesus could heal his girl while she was knocking on death's door than it was for him to believe that he could raise her from the dead. By this point in Mark's gospel, nobody's been raised from the dead yet. People have been set free from demons. Um, Peter's mother-in-law has been healed from a fever. Lots of people have brought their sick to Jesus, and he's touched them, and they've been healed. But nobody's been raised from the dead. Lazarus hasn't happened. The widow's son from Nain in Luke's gospel, he hadn't been raised up yet. Nobody's been resurrected. And so from Jairus' perspective, by orders of magnitude, it's easier to believe that Jesus could heal this girl while she's at death's door than to believe he can raise her from the dead. But Jesus challenges him to believe. Even when situations get worse. I mean, you think about your life. Think about conversations I've had with people over the years. It's easier to believe... Jesus can fix minor problems than bigger problems. When you can see the way out, it's easier to trust than when you can't. I read about a study a scientist did at Harvard back in the 50s. Wanted to experiment on rats and see how long they could survive in hopeless situations. So this is brutal. It's not for the weak stomach, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So this guy takes rats and he puts them in a bucket of water and seals it up so that no light can get in and measures how long they'll keep swimming. All the rats gave up in less than three minutes. There's no hope, no light. Swim until you can't, and then give up. Then he put another group in buckets of water and let a little light shine in. And those rats swam for 60 hours. I'm that way. If I can see the way out, I'll keep fighting. But when things look hopeless, I give up. Okay, that's Jairus. I I cannot imagine. Y'all are laughing at me. I thought y'all could commiserate with me. Here I am. I'm the weirdo, okay? But that's the way I think about this. I'm I'm thinking about Jairus like I'm thinking about Mary and Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't be in that tomb. How much easier is it for Jesus to mend a, a marriage with a couple of problems? than him to completely put back one together that's completely broken apart. You know, those are the kinds of things I think about. Can I hang on to my faith when my situations change? Listen, if your faith is fickle at the start, it won't sustain you to the finish. If your faith depends on your circumstances, you're headed for trouble. Because circumstances are going to change. Sometimes things are going to get bad. My wife has to tell me all the time, hey, baby, it's as easy as it's ever going to (laughs) get. She does. She's had to tell me that a few times this week. It's like, hey, you're not getting through this spring. You're not getting through the summer, and then everything's going to be different. Baby, it's as easy as it's ever going to get. And that's the truth. It is. It is as easy as it's ever going to get. And if your faith is dependent on your circumstances, if you get discouraged when things take a turn for the worse, you're in trouble. 
You need to cultivate a desperate faith that refuses to be discouraged. But sometimes it's not just the circumstances that get us down, is it? Sometimes it's the cynical and critical people who always seem to find a voice in your ear. Jesus says, entering in to their house, he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child hasn't died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Now, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't get it. I get that they think Jesus is out of his mind. He's lost touch with reality. These people who were crying, who were weeping and wailing, they were professional mourners who'd been hired by Jairus to carry out this elaborate ritual required by Jewish tradition for deceased people. The more wealthy you were, the bigger of a show the mourners had to make. And so they're weeping and wailing loudly, causing a scene. And in walks Jesus, and he says, why are you guys causing such a fuss? This girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they've been around death enough to know she's dead. They are professional mourners. That's their job. They show up when people have died, and they make a scene. So for Jesus to say they're sleeping, she's sleeping, is clear. He, he's, not, this, he's new to this. He doesn't know yet. Wait till he goes in there, and he's going to see and They laugh at him. One commentator said that shows you just how, how detached they were from Jairus' suffering. That one second they could weep and wail, and the next second they could be laughing. I don't know. I don't really know what to make of it. But I do know that they thought Jesus was out of touch. One commentator said these professional mourners represent to us the hardcore realists. The hardcore realists in every age who allow the empirical realities to foreclose on divine possibilities. Let me put it differently. These are the people who like to call it like they see it. You know, you ever know anybody like that? Hey, I'm just calling it like I see it. They're the people who like to say things like this. I told you this God thing was a bunch of fairy tales. I knew eventually, I knew eventually life would get tough. And when it did, you'd give it up. They're like the Israelite spies who are sent by Moses to check out the promised land. They come back and give their report to the people. In Numbers 13, they say, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They display it for all to see. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. We're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. The empirical realities, what they can observe with their own eyes get in the way of their faith in God. You ever known anybody like that? Cut you down to size? They seem to delight in it, right? Just speaking venom into your faith. And that's what Jairus had. He had a bunch of scoffers and cynics laughing because Jesus thought he could come into that girl's bedroom and make something change about her situation. They knew she was dead. There's nothing anybody can do. You're too late. And you can better believe that when the pressure is applied, you're going to hear about it from some people. Some cynical and critical voices are going to delight in knocking you down. They want to tell you, I told you this day was coming. I knew eventually your faith would all fall to pieces and you'd see things as it really were. But listen, you got to be like Jairus. You got to refuse to get discouraged. You got to go in with Jesus into the bedroom and let him do what he wants to do. Okay, he's God, you're not. He gets the final say on the situation. We'll get there in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. You got to be like Joshua and Caleb. 
who heard the spies' report, and they said, hey, it's all true. But if the Lord's pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. The Lord is with us. Do not fear him. Despite what the critics and the cynics and the naysayers say, people with desperate faith recognize Jesus is their only hope, and they refuse to get discouraged when he seems to be acting in ways that they didn't expect. And when they do, they receive his answer. That's the third thing we got to see, that desperate faith receives an answer. Let's go back to the woman, because here she is, pressing through the crowd, reaching out to grab Jesus' cloak, and what happens? Mark says in verse 29 that immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. This isn't, hey, go home, take these for six days, and call me back when, you, when you're done. We'll see where we go from here. She knew immediately. She'd touch Jesus, and she was well. And the really amazing thing is that he knew it too. Immediately, he felt in himself that the power from him had gone forth. He knew. That, that, that something had happened. Some wires had got crossed, and they both knew. They could tell. I think this is interesting because up until this point, every miracle that Jesus has performed has been on his own initiative. He's initiated them. He's, he's done something about it. He's reached out and touched them. He said the words, and everything's come to, to fruition. But this one almost seems accidental. It's like he felt the power flow from him. And there's a way to interpret this event superstitiously, like the ash of an ostrich egg in a handkerchief. And apparently that's part of what this woman's motivation was. She believed somehow that Jesus was this powerful person and if she could just touch him, that somehow his miraculous healing power would transmit from him to her just as her impurity transmitted from her to others. He had this miraculous stuff that was going to flow from him to her. So she approaches him, hoping to grab hold of him and see some of that power. But the interesting thing is, we know she wasn't the only person who touched him that day. The disciples are there to remind Jesus of that. Everybody's touching you. How are you going to ask, who touched me? But apparently, this woman was the only person who touched Jesus that day who got healed. And something's up with that. It's not the superstitious healing power flows from one thing to the next, or else everybody would have been healed of all their infirmities. Something different is going on. I believe that's because the healing came not just on the basis of her physical touch, but because she had seized hold of Christ by faith. It wasn't about the garment. It was about the faith that she possessed. And that's the only way to make sense of Jesus' response to her. I mean, he turns around and singles her out in the crowd, calls her out into the open, and makes an example of her. I mean, Mark says she told him the whole truth. She told him everything. For 12 years, I've been suffering from this terrible and debilitating, shameful thing. And I've gone to every doctor I could find, but none of them could help me. I've spent every last dollar I had looking for a cure, but today I'd heard you were coming through. And so I left my house just hoping that if I could touch your garment, you would heal me. And when I did, I knew immediately that I had been completely healed. She told him everything. And he looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's amazing. He calls her out into the open and he says, you're right, I am powerful like that. And if anybody will touch me, they'll be healed. He says, your faith has healed you. 
That desperate faith that recognized Jesus at her only hope, that refused to get discouraged by all the times that she tried to find a cure and failed, that pressed through the crowd, reaching around people, crawling on the ground just so that she could get close enough to him to grab it, all that, nothing deterred her. And when she seized his robe, she got what she needed. She found her answer. Jesus healed her. That's the way faith works. It's tempting here, though, to see this exchange as some kind of transaction. I heard somebody say one time that faith is the currency with which we purchase our miracles. I think that's like out of an Oprah book. I don't know that that's the Bible. Because that tells you if you didn't get your miracle, you didn't have enough faith. And that's just not the way it works. The answer she received couldn't have been some kind of transaction. Went deeper than that. She got more than she bargained for. She just wanted the flow of blood to stop. And here's Jesus saying, go in peace. He knew there was something deeper she needed. She didn't just need her physical healing. She needed to experience this holistic restoration, the peace, the shalom of God, putting everything back together with her to release her from her shame, to bring her out of the darkness and into the open, to assure her that from God's perspective, she was all set. She was in peace. He spoke over her that peace of God which passes all understanding. And she wasn't just healed of her disease. She left that day knowing that she was right with God. That's the answer the lady got. And I got to think that at least part of the reason Jesus called her out in the open is because he knew what Jairus was about to experience. He knew that Jairus was about to get news that his daughter had died and his initial request for Jesus to come lay hands on her so that she'd be saved and her life would be spared was about to be put to the test. Was he willing to believe? Was he willing to continue in desperate faith searching for his answer? And apparently he was. The woman's example taught Jairus something, and he took him into the house, and Jesus hand-selected his inner guys, his inner group of guys, Peter, James, and John, got the girl's mother and father, and they go into this bedroom. And I love the way, I love the way Mark includes this Aramaic phrase, Talitha kum, little girl arise. I mean, most people think that the reason Mark says this is because it's the very recollection from Peter's memory about the words Jesus spoke. That it was so vivid in Peter's mind 30 years later when he was recalling the events and Mark was writing them down that the, the very words were there. Little girl, get up. Not some kind of magic formula. Arise out of your flow of blood. Just, little girl, get up. Peace, be still. The same thing he'd spoken to the storm, he spoke to this girl without any fuss or fanfare. He took her by the hand and got her up out of her bed. That's the answer Jairus had wanted, and then some. Harder to believe that he could do it, and there he just did. He'd proved everybody who laughed wrong. I'm given the answer. Now think about these stories. and Think about my faith when the pressures applied to me. And I'm challenged, and, and I bet you are too. Brad, are you really saying that if I have desperate faith that God's going to answer my prayers like he did for them? You mean that if I ask him to get my little girl up out of the deathbed, he will? That he'll heal my disease that I've been struggling with for 12 years? And to be honest with you, I don't know. I think about examples in Scripture of people who had deep faith and asked boldly of God for certain things, and he didn't come through. Think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 
complains about this thorn in his flesh, some debilitating illness. Some people think it's an, an eye thing, uh, an oozing from his eye that he'd asked God to take from him. And three times he asked, Lord, take this thorn away from me. And he didn't. And finally, he, so, he told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul had desperate faith, hanging on to an answer. The answer he got wasn't the one he was looking for. It was something different. Not I'm going to heal you perfectly of your disease, but I'm going to teach you just how powerful I am, and I'm going to do it by letting you live out your weakness so that you have to learn how to depend on me. I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, thinking about all that lay in front of him, knowing that 24 hours, within 24 hours, he was going to suffer a scourging he was going to be condemned to death, and he was going to be nailed to a cross. And so he poured out his heart to God. Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, please let it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who ever lived who lived with faith like Jesus did. I mean, he perfectly trusted his Father. He did everything his Father asked him to do, and he lived believing that God would come through for him. So much so that when people saw him on the cross... They say, hey, he believes in God. Why doesn't he just ask God to come down and take him off the cross right now? Yet the Father's plan for Jesus was different than that. It culminated in his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And so my word to you this morning is God often answers our prayers in three ways. You heard this? Yes, no, and not yet. And I think that this story challenges me because I want my life to be neat and clean. That when the pressure is applied, I clearly identify to God, hey God, you're my only hope in this situation and I'm believing 100% that you're going to come through in the way that I think you should. And sometimes God tells me no. And sometimes he says not yet. And then occasionally he says yes. And in hindsight, I look back and discover that the answer he gave me was the answer I needed, even if it wasn't the answer I wanted. And desperate faith doesn't dictate the terms to God. It patiently waits until it receives its answer. And my final point to sort of encourage you with that is this beautiful ambiguity that's all twisted up in this story. That when Jairus falls down at Jesus' feet and says, come deliver my daughter, and when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, the Greek word that's used for deliver and to make well is the same word that's translated to save. It's a Greek word, sozo. And when Mark tells us that this little girl got up out of her bed, it's the same word that the New Testament authors use to describe Jesus coming out of his grave. And I know for you and for me, we want our solutions right here and right now. The reality is what God is working in us is so far beyond what we can see in this moment. That he is conforming us into the image of his son. That he doesn't just want to deliver us from our current afflictions. He doesn't want to just set us free from the pressures you and I are facing right now. He wants to save us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to bring us to himself so that we live with him forever. So that one day when they lower our bodies into the ground and our family stands around our grave and weeps, They'll do so with hope, believing that someday Christ will return and the dead in Christ will get up 
out of their graves, and they will reign with Christ forever. That is our eternal destiny. And so if my faith requires me to hold on longer than I anticipate, longer than I want to for an answer that I don't like, I'm willing to trust him because my future is secure in him. This morning, that's the faith we need, church. A desperate faith that Jesus is glad to meet with God's miraculous power. And so this morning, I wonder, when the pressure's applied in your life, what's revealed? What have you seen in yourself lately? Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you angry? Hopeless? Are you frantic? Are you busy? Or are you full of faith? This morning, I think God is challenging us to renew our commitment to recognizing Jesus as our only hope. It's easier today than it's ever been to say, Jesus is all I've got. Today, you need to renew your commitment to recognize him as your only hope. Confess those things that have pressed in and tried to take your eyes off of him, the things that you've tried to use to solve your own problems, the people that you've been leaning on when really you need to just lean on him. Today, he's shown you this story because he wants you to renew your commitment to recognizing him as your only hope. Number two, do you need to double down on your faith by recognizing the things that have caused you to get discouraged? I mean, just kind of naming them. Name the circumstances, name the people, the things that have allowed you to lose sight of Christ and get discouraged in your circumstances. Today, you need to surround yourselves with voices of people who are going to stir you up to faith, who are going to challenge you to believe, who can say, brother, sister, I know it's tough, but God has got this. Keep trusting. Keep hanging on to Jesus. Remember the story of Jairus. Remember the story of the woman. You need a prayer partner. You need somebody you can text in the middle of the night and say, hey, I'm up again, and I'm worried. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of this mess. I need you to pray for me that I could trust in God despite my circumstances. There are people in our church who would love to do that for you. I'm going to talk about Tony in a little bit. And after service, if you need a prayer partner, somebody to take you by the hand and bring you before the throne of God, is going to lift you up and keep you encouraged, see Tony. She'd be glad to help you find somebody who'd pray with you like that. And finally, do you need to keep trusting until you get your answer? It dawned on me this morning as I was getting ready that nobody ever regretted trusting God. Nobody ever gets to their life and looks back and says, you know what? I trusted God too much. I should have tried to figure some of that stuff out on my own. I shouldn't have trusted God. Nobody says that. That's so ridiculous. We get to the end of our lives and say, hey, I could have, I could have avoided some terrible disappointments if I had just walked day by day with complete, desperate faith in a God who loves me and sent his son Jesus to live and die for me. Nobody ever regrets trusting in God. And today, do you need to just double down and commit? You know what? My life is pretty dark. Pressure's getting turned up pretty high. But I'm going to keep trusting no matter what. So today, let's ask God to help us cultivate that kind of faith. Let's be people like Jairus and this woman who press through every obstacle to take hold of Christ who has taken hold of us. Will you all pray with me?